understand. Check, check. Gav, I'm going to check both vocal mics, okay? It's a frightful and fearful thing to, for sinful people to come before a holy and pure God. We need a mediator, Lord God, and we praise you and we thank you for the great shepherd of the sheep and the eternal covenant of the blood, Lord God, that washes all those who believe in the blood of Christ. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, for being our mediator and we are accepted before a holy God now because of you and your precious blood. So thank you, Father, for this truth. Lord, we ask you to prepare our hearts to receive your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray, Lord, it would pierce every soul here today, Lord God, and have its perfect effect in their lives, Lord Jesus. So may your word go forth and accomplish what you have set it forth to accomplish. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your holy word and for not leaving us in our darkness, Lord God, but enlightening us with the truth, Lord Jesus. So bless your servant, Pat, this day, Lord. Work in him and through him. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to believe, and a mouth to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Bless this time, Father, and be exalted in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I, I did fail to remind that uh, this being the first of the four Sundays of Advent, uh, Chrissy, do you want to just give a quick little what's going on after yeah, for the... What I'll do is after after uh, the message and after I pray, before we sing the closing song together, while they're setting up, then that will be the time to go ahead and take them down. So you just won't be able to pick that fine ukulele on the closing song, sister. You can come back. We're doing it back <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. So our message this week, promise breaking circumcision for dummies. <laughs> well... I mean, some of you are familiar with the Dummies series of books. I, you may even have some at home. These are just fantastic little books for a skill, a, a craft, something that you don't know, that you'd like to know, and you really need it at a dummy level, okay? And really, I think that's where Paul finds himself at this point with the Galatian church. And so as I sort of wrestled with 
you know, in a title, I like to try to encapsulate where the sermon is going. I think this does it. So let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Please. And I will read. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The reason why it's so important for Paul to sort of do this and speak to them the way that he needs to speak with them is that there is an awful lot at stake. What is at stake for the Galatian believers is a meaningful Christian existence. Because the difference, really, between a properly functioning human being and a defective or non-properly functioning human being is the gospel. And the gospel is what puts everything back to what God intended it to be back when he started doing his God thing. And I'm just going to read for a moment Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Many of us may struggle to give some definition to what is the image of God. What do we really mean by the image of God? So, to help us in that endeavor, we're going to have a little five and a half minute video here from the organization called The Bible Project because I want us all to have in our minds a good grasp on exactly what it means to be image of God. And it's only about five minutes and then more. Claim they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, 
they didn't view their kings as the god. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Well, let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So 
practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says, this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Why are we even here? What is the purpose going all the way back to Genesis where things are once again they're supposed to be? So salvation is not a one and done event. Right? Salvation is a lifestyle. And it's one empowered by the gospel from start to eternity. The good news is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, the circumcision freaks were preaching the bad news, which is that unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved, among other things. You cannot be God's people. In their view, in order to be considered God's people, you had to be living under Mosaic law, the circumcision being the symbol thereof and the main thing. Acts 15, you can read more about that. And this is why Paul proclaims that anyone vomiting that filth, preaching that different gospel, is accursed. We read that back in the beginning of Galatians. It's quite astonishing, really. The Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. And instead, many of them, the Judaizers, the party of the circumcision, Paul calls them, by their practices and influence, have become the very reason that the name of God was being blasphemed among the Gentiles or the non-Jews, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Paul's theological point in the text today is that God can never break his promise. But the Judaizers are breaking God's promise. And we need to caution again. So knowing the Galatians have been bewitched, as was preached, they are attempting to proceed in the human project by their own power, or the flesh. Paul needs an approach for dummies. And uh, that's not entirely derogatory. Paul has called them much worse than that to this point already. But he really needs an approach for dummies, which we can be as well. He needs to keep it simple, to sort of meet them where they're at. And so... In verse 15, we find, you know, many ways around this in Western law, but not so much at all in them. To give you a human example, brothers, even when a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, we have ways that we can do that. I think to some degree, we have probate courts and all kinds of things that can tie up wills and contest and all this other thing. Not so in this ancient form of covenant of this will or of this testament, if you want to call it that as well. All means the same here. There's no adding to it. You, you can't make changes after the ratification of it. You look at how, we'll, we'll see how that was ratified a little bit later in the message, but it has been ratified. And so there were certain promises, right, that God made. And if you go back and read, you, you can see that God made a promise to Abraham. He promised him a seed. He promised him a nation. He promised him land. And he promised him blessing. And to a certain extent... All of these were fulfilled in, uh, in, in, 
Abraham physically. Seems like I'm a little bit dead on this thing. These sort of had an, an initial fulfillment in Abraham's lifetime. Uh, we read in Genesis 24.1, Now Abraham, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. So they had the land, they had the nation, there were a number of blessings. And the promise was made, though, to Adam, I'm sorry, to Abraham, and to his seed. And Paul makes it a point to say, not to more than one seed, but to one seed. To one seed, and that seed is Christ. It's a strange way for us to hear. We don't, we don't talk in that way. But all those promises, what this is telling us, all those promises that God made to Abraham, he also made to Abraham's seed. And we know, as it says in the text here, that that seed is Christ. And so, <clears throat> that, and so we see if you want to turn it on to the next, uh, go ahead and give me the next slide then, if I can't. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, and if it comes over, that's fine, and if not, that's fine. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So again, we're seeing the spiritual fulfillment of these things in Christ, the spiritual reality in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 2, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Titus two eleven to 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who was zealous for good works. So all of these promises made to Abraham, which were also made to Christ, are fulfilled physically there and spiritually in Christ. And so that we have... What I would call then, what we're talking about here, is a fully functioning human being. This is the road that we're on. That was the covenant. That is what God had all of this in mind. And so, what was, what's about to happen, we're still, there we go. Is, is Paul's going to sort of pull the Abraham card, okay? Paul's going to pull the Abraham card on the Galatian believers, but more importantly, the, the Judaizers that are among them. He begins to talk about Abraham. And that God made these promises that we just detailed. God made these promises 430 years before the giving of the Mosaic Law on Mount Sinai when the Israelites had fled Egypt. So 430 years before the Mosaic Law came along, this law that they're completely immersed in, in, in suggesting that in order to be a people of God, you have to be under the Mosaic Law. This promise, this covenant with Abraham, this covenant of promise was given 430 years prior to the giving of the law. Now, why this doesn't occur, and why they don't think about this, why these, these, these hearers didn't think about this during the course of their time, is difficult to discern. Because they knew so much of Abraham, you would think that they would know that. And importantly, this happened before Abraham was circumcised. Romans 4, 7 to 10, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Before he was circumcised. So Paul is taking apart the entire foundation upon which these Judaizers are trying to do what they are trying to do. And so the covenant was ratified. It was a covenant of promise. Whatever else may be said, positive and negative, about the Mosaic law, it came 400 years later. Galatians 3.9 states that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So faith brings blessing, and we saw that the law brings a curse for those who attempt to live by its works and provisions. We're not really going to get a whole lot into sort of the, the other aspects of the law. But it cannot change promise. The inheritance, the inheritance is based on promise. And verse 29 of, of Galatians chapter 3 tells us that we're, we're in that. Okay? That if, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ who inherited all that God gave to him. God has granted it to Abraham and to his seed and therefore to the Galatian believers. And so the question is naturally going to come up then, well, why the law? If this is so, why the law? Now, two different types of people might ask that two different ways. The Judaizers might say, why the law then, Paul? Right? And the believers might say, I as you and I do, why, why the law? Why was, what's, what's up with the Mosaic law? Why are we still talking about it? What does that come in to our Christian life and existence? It's a huge question. Okay, and next week Seth is going to really get into the weeds with this as to exactly how the law functioned in the old covenant era. And, and this is, you know, this is an unenviable task. There's no small task in doing this. And, you know, it's, I've got this little 400 and something page book, five views on the law and gospel. You know, as the Christian wonders, where does the law and the gospel fit together? And this is one book of many. This just happens to be a very good one, written by five really solid dudes. And so there are five basic approaches in here to law and gospel, and then the other four each take turns critiquing what that guy wrote. So you get five views and four guys saying, I like this about that view, but this is the reason why I don't like this view and the reason why I like my view better. That's 430 pages. 420 pages. And again, there's a million books, uh, well, probably not a million just like it because unless it's written really in a good, solid, um, reformed tradition, it's, it's going to be lacking. But that one is written in such a tradition and it is very good. It's an important question. Christians rightly struggle with it and fumble to try to explain it. We Christians try to fumble to explain the law. I challenge any of us to try to have that conversation with someone that asks you, what's up with the Mosaic law and what's the place of the law for Christians? Now you might have a real sort of 10,000 foot view response and you kind of hope the subject just gets changed and you don't get to wrestle with it a whole lot. But the failure to understand the purpose of the Mosaic law is in part responsible for many varieties of legalism that have plagued the church since day one of the church. The Galatian church is really a petri dish for Mosaic legalism. And and legalism is deadly. And sadly, there continues to be gain-of-function research done with the Mosaic law. Rather than just leaving it to its intended use, and the plague that's been let loose on the church has contributed to ruin and shipwreck the faith of many It is that important. And 
So when we're asking why the law, I think in order to understand how the Mosaic law functioned, which again is what Seth will get to next week, and all the attendant questions that proceed from that, we must first know why the Mosaic law was given. Why was this law given? Okay, so this is how it works. Why was it given? And two key words in this text, I think, stand out that we want to pay attention to, such that if you, if you get these two, you're well on the way to at least avoiding confusion in your devotion to Christ when it comes to the place of the law. The first word is added. It's a very big word in this. The law was added. Why then the law? It was added. And we've gone... Uh, we've gone over enough of sort of, you know, the 430-year thing. It came 430 years after the promise. It was added. That doesn't mean it was added to the promise in such a way as to make the promise conditional, keeping the law. So the, this addition, for lack of a better word, of the law was not in any way to add something to the covenant. It wasn't added to the promise because it would compromise the promise if you turned around and added to it. The law is loaded with if-then conditions. The Mosaic Law is loaded with if-then conditions. If you do this, then you shall live. If you do this, then you shall die. If you do this, then that. If you don't do this, then that. Etc., etc. So it wasn't added to the promise itself, but it was added... It was added to the relationship that God had with His people. So that God's people would apprehend what it means to be in a relationship with God. What it means to be people of promise. It was added so that God's chosen people, the Israelites, could immerse themselves in the question, how does someone who truly believes Yahweh keeps his promise conduct themselves? How does such a person relate to others and to Yahweh, given this promise? And the law addresses that. Remember that for at least 200 years, the chosen people of God were slaves in Egypt. I say for at least 200 because there's disagreement about that, lo and behold, like so many other things, right? There's so many other things. I was doing a little bit of the math in my own head, and I said, gee, I, th- I thought the Israelites were going to be slaves for 400 years. Then I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. The law came 430 years after Abraham, so I started to do the math. I said, well, when did the Exodus take pl- place in relation to Abraham? You've got some couple hundred years there, right? Anyway, at least 200 years they're enslaved in Egypt, confined really to the land of Goshen, which it turns out in and of itself served a pretty good function. In a sense, they were insulated from outside pagan influence. They, they lived as slaves. They had very limited freedoms. It, it took everything out of them. It was an exhausting humiliating existence. And there wasn't time much more for than, than, than building things for Ramses and eating and going to bed and getting up and doing it all over again. And so in, in a certain sense, they were protected from the syncretism, the multi-religious world that was going on all around them. God sort of insulated, inoculated them a little bit from that. But now, now they're going to freedom. The next phase of of their existence as the people of God has begun with their release. Now they could experience things as free people. This is naturally going to change one's perception of so many things. To go from a few centuries in, in in the sort of cognitive awareness that we were slaves 
And, and what does that mean? How do we relate to people now? And though it's a different form of slavery, e- even in our own history, you know, we look at, you know, uh, slaves haven't been free now for a period of time, but, but how, how that still impacts the culture, how that it still impacts the cultures that, that come together and, and, and the diversity of things that doesn't always look so good. So to be free now after all this time, to go out and to be doing what they were doing, it just it opens up a whole new world of perceiving things and seeing things and relating to things and learning things. So how do we relate to one another? How, how do we build community? How do we relate to God now that He has answered our longing to be free? Now what? At the same time, the way that they were to live, the way that they related to God and one another, the way that they built community in society was to be a model, <clears throat> excuse me, for the pagan nations around them, to attract them to Yahweh. They were to be alike to the Gentiles. Now, they certainly had sort of long forgotten that. Jesus reminds them, Jesus, remember, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Jesus reminded his audience when he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul said to the church at Philippi, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And he says that it was, therefore he says, after having said it was added, it was added because of transgressions. That's not our second word. I'm just building on that. It was added because of transgressions. Now, we see three words throughout Scripture, typically that speak to the things that we do that God tells us not to do. We see sin, we see iniquity, and we see transgression throughout Scripture. And like so many words in the not only the Semitic languages, but some of the Near Eastern languages that have such a richer way of nuancing things, each one of these words has a particular nuance that's very important to the context that we find it in. We typically refer to sin as sort of missing the mark or it's some sort of a moral failure. In iniquity, and by the way, there's a great little video of this called the Bad Word Series in the same Bible project. They give a nice little six or seven minute thing on the difference between these three words and how they're used throughout the Testaments. But iniquity is behavior that's crooked. Transgression is also known as rebellion or in our translations trespassing or it's the idea of crossing a line. It refers specifically to violating the trust of others. It's the betrayal of a relationship. It's the breaking of a treaty. Adam and Eve transgressed, Paul said. He said Eve was first in the transgression. They transgressed. They didn't merely sin, not not minimizing sin. Rather than trust God to define good and evil, they, they took it upon themselves. They transgressed with God. So the law, the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic code for life as God's ancient people was added because of transgression, to define transgression, to define what trusting God looks like, to define what partnership with God looks like, to define the consequences as individuals and as a nation for betrayal 
of that trust that God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no gods before me. Really, it is, it, it's something of a, it's something of a three-dimensional mural detailing what love for God and others is. After all, as Paul says later on in Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it was added because of transgressions. And that's just a weird way that it's worded in English. It, and again, just because of the way it's worded, some people say it was, we know that the law was, when the law was given, it increased sin. We know that that's not the point of this. But it was given because transgressions, it was important for the people to know what transgressions were, what it meant to be. And, and, and of course, a number of the sins that we commit become a form of, the, of, of that, uh, they become part of the fabric of transgression. Now the second key word here, the first one is added, the second one is until. Until. Again, two very big words in understanding the place of the Mosaic Law as we contemplate that as uh, in Christ's people. Okay? Until, I'm sorry, added in until. The Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant was temporary. It had a shelf life. It had an expiration date, so to speak. And if you've been through any of our preaching series or teaching series in Hebrews, you've got some good exposure to this. As such, the Mosaic Law is not a law you and I have ever been or ever will be subject to. You and I are not partakers of the Old Covenant. We have nothing to do with the Old Covenant. It was never for us. The Old Covenant was never intended for you and I. It wasn't intended for the Jew in 500 A.D. either. (laughs) It wasn't intended for the Jew in 200 A.D. It was intended for the Jew up until the day before Jesus died. We are children of the promise. Now this is, again, I'm not getting into what function does serve for us now. I don't even think that necessarily Seth is going to get into that. He may, he may touch on it. You know, what, 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 what function does the, what, what can we do with the law now? You know, how is it, we know that all scripture is inspired by God, right? And it's, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, and doctrine, and training in righteousness. So it certainly has a place. So I think it was one of the, Brothers that commented in here on the Ten Commandments, for example, said the Ten Commandments is a, the, a transcript of the moral character of God. The Ten Commandments are a transcript of the moral character of God. So there's certainly much that we can still glean from the particulars of that. But when I say the Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Covenant, I'm talking about covenant. I'm not talking about these different things that we might get from it. I'm talking about it as a system of relating to God and one another. Now we're filled with the Spirit. It was to be only until the promised seed to whom the promise was made comes, which is again is Jesus. And he has come, so God's fulfilled the promise to Jesus and it merely awaits its final consummation for us. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts hearts as a guarantee. We are not under law, but we are under grace. We are led by the Spirit. We are united with God. Christ is in us. The Spirit is in us. We are one with the triune God. You need to meditate upon that and think about it. What does it mean that I have been joined to God? I don't need an external influencing factor on my character. Everything is it comes from within now because we are united with the Spirit by faith. And now that Paul has told them the why of the law and that it was only until, 
which is to say temporary, he gives a final encouragement before going on to detail the Mosaic law in 21 through 26. And this is, this is for us as much as it is for the original audience. You know, you and I are still against subject to the effect of legalism. We're tempted at times to judge and to doubt based on what we see as our adherence to a set of do's and don'ts. And I'm not suggesting that we do and do not. That those have no bearing on us at all, on our spiritual health and vitality, but surely it does. Living a sinful life is not a good idea. We may get bogged down in seeking the approval of others, thinking somehow that their approval constitutes God's approval. Be careful for that one. It's why it's so important to know Scripture. John Piper once said that the Jews' mistake was that they took the law, which was intended to be a railroad track, right? Intended to be a railroad track for following God, and they turned it into a ladder by which they could climb to heaven. You know? They took the, 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 the Mosaic law, which was to sort of again be this railroad track for traveling along with God and following God, and they, they tore it up and they turned it into a ladder with which they thought they could climb to heaven and impose that on others as well. This is the story of Paul's life. It's the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, fighting Judaizers everywhere he went. You know, just dogging him everywhere he went. Showing up, you gotta be circumcised, you gotta do this, you know, you gotta do that. So much so, and, and, and it created such confusion as we saw a few weeks ago, even Peter and Barnabas were led astray. So don't think for a time that you can be free of the potential influence of things that are not gospel. So Paul says some things here about mediators and angels and that a mediator is needed when there are two or more parties, right? And the law was between two parties, the ancient Jewish people and God. But he goes on to say, but but God is one. So he's making another important distinction here. The promise only deals with that the law had a mediator, it had angels, it had all this, this cool stuff going on. But God is one. His promise is a one-sided promise that requires no mediation. That, that, that's not to deny that Christ is the mediator between man and God, but... Then again, once again, he's the initiator, he is the judge, he is the lawyer, he is the mediator. God has bound himself to the fulfillment of his promise, the promise he made to Abraham. And to Jesus, as the scripture this morning declares. And, and we won't go back and look at it, but if you go back to the Genesis text, the way of ratifying treaties there was, you know, you take a dove, you take a this, you take a that, you take you know, a number of small animals, birds, you cut them in half. And then each member to the covenant or each member to the party passes through those split pieces. And that's how they're basically saying, if I don't fulfill my part of the, co- the covenant, God do it to me and, and, and even more so, right? So you split the animal in half, kill the animal, split it in half, you pass through it. Well, while Adam, uh, sorry, while Abraham was in a deep sleep, said Adam, because God does amazing things with his people when they sleep. <laughs> While Abraham is in a deep sleep, God, in, in, a, in a pot and a fire, passes between the two pieces. And so that's just symbolic of him taking that covenant fully upon himself to fulfill. He's going to ratify it. He is both parties in the agreement. God wants you and I to take comfort and hope in his promise and in his ability and in his intention to complete it in you and in the church. 
For I say again, you and I are co-heirs with Christ. <clears throat> Ray Ortland wrote, There's nothing like the church in the world today. A new kind of community created by God that makes the gospel visible and convincing in a world that believes everything but the gospel. See, the promise is always fresh before us in the church. The church is a constant reminder of the beauty of the promise of God or is intended to be. Because it's through the Spirit-filled church the promise is kept fresh and visible. And we're continually seeing fruit from the seed of Abraham. Just, last thing I want to do is take a, just a little look at this sort of a parallel text in Hebrews that talks about how important this promise is that God's talking about. And he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 19, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and I, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as assurance, steadfast anchor for the soul. God desires us to see something. He wanted the Galatians to stop being dummies and to be free of the promise-breaking circumcision freaks. And God desires the same of you and me so that we can avoid the pitfalls of many false gospels. And they are everywhere. But God desires. As soon as you see God desires, you, you know what it's like when you just really want people to see something. You get all that passion worked up. And he says, come here, you got to see this. you got to see this. Can't wait to tell somebody about the latest episode of, you know, whatever show it was that they were watching or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you're into with the various Netflix shows. Yeah, you gotta see this, you gotta see this next week, you gotta see it, you gotta see, come here, you gotta see this. Well, God wants us to see that He remains faithful to what He's doing. His purpose has not changed. He's sworn by Himself because there's none greater. There's fullness of heart to be had. God wants us to know that He's for us. He wants us to have the fullest assurance that we're His. He wants us to see Jesus. He wants to reveal His Son, the, the Son of His love, who loved us and gave Himself up for us. God is the greatest evangelist there ever was or ever will be because He's witnessing of Himself. And He wants us to come to full gospel maturity to know our life in Christ and to live it out for all the universe to see. So let's close in prayer and then after I pray we'll um, dismiss the Advent celebration crowd. Lord, protect your garden this morning. Let not the seed of your word be snatched away. Grant us ears to hear the ancient promise echoing through the hearts of your church here at Sovereign Grace and around the world. Give us a discerning mind that we may detect the slightest compromise to your gospel. Lord, look upon any threats against your people and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And let the words of our mouths 
and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and our blessed promise keeper. Amen. Okay, so the Advent crowd, off and running. They're making pudding, among other things. I just work here, don't ask me. Don't ask me.